wonderful God, and we are saved by a wonderful Savior. On January the 17th, 1942, in Louisville, Kentucky, Marcellus and Odessa Clay gave birth to a bouncing baby boy. Little did they know that their son would become one of the greatest athletes that would ever live. Named after his father, young Marcellus took up boxing, and it was just a short period of time when he became the most winning amateur champion in the world. Shortly after that, he went to the 1960 Olympics in Rome and won decisively. When he arrived home, 22-year-old Cassius Marcellus Clay turned to the ring of the professional boxing. And there he defeated his first opponent like a piece of cake. It was shortly after that that Clay began to focus on the heavyweight title of the world and he wiped out the champion, Sonny Liston, in seven short rounds. That victory started a career that lasted 20 years and 61 fights. Cassius Marcellus Clay soon would change his name to Muhammad Ali and there became one of the most publicized boxers of all time, even declaring himself to be the greatest of all time. Ali was a strange sort because Ali constantly tried to psych out his opponents. Before they ever got in the ring, he would try to psych them out. And in 1974, Muhammad Ali was getting ready for his championship fight against George Foreman. And while bragging about how fast he was, Muhammad Ali said, I float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Now, George thinks he will, but I know that he won't. Now you see me, now you don't. Grrr. Ali, what a character. But true to his word, Ali blistered Foreman with an eighth-round knockout and retained the heavyweight title of the world. Now, here's what you need to know about that fight. Ali defeated Foreman using many tactics, using many methods. One way was Ali intimidated his opponents physically. Not only did he intimidate them physically, he also, also wore them down emotionally in his attempt to break them spiritually. Now, friends, you and I have an opponent just like that. Friend, you've got an opponent who strives to intimidate you physically, tries to wear you down emotionally, all in an effort to break you spiritually. So for the next couple of weeks, because of that reason, you and I are going to learn details about the greatest heavyweight bout in all the world. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to read a little bit about this greatest heavyweight bout of the world. But we're going to 
back up from chapter 4, and we're going to go to verse 13 of chapter 3. Because then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan. Why? To be baptized by him. Strange, but we'll talk about that some more in a moment. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up, in, led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he, Jesus, answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written that he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot even against the stone. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only, say him only, him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Before we get too far into this greatest heavyweight bout in all the world, I suppose that we should be formally introduced to the participants in this corner. Peter called him the adversary, a roaring lion seeking to whom he may devour. Moses called him cunning as a serpent. John called him a murderer from the beginning of time. You know him as the accuser. You know him as the deceiver, the liar, the thief. Some know him as Lucifer, some Satan, some the prince of darkness. Matthew called him the tempter. He's been practicing for this fight since the beginning of mankind. He tempted Eve in the garden. He's tempted every man and woman in the Old Testament. My friends, he is at the top of his game. He is in the best shape of his life. He is determined to win from places deep down in the abyss. He is the devil. Now, meet his opponent. In this corner, John called him the Lamb of God. God the Father called him my son, in whom I am well pleased. He calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. 
You know him as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. Some know him as God in the flesh. Some know him as their personal Lord and Savior. Even his opponent calls him the Son of God. From heaven above, the undisputed champion of love. He is the greatest of all time. He is Jesus. Amen. His training. His training depended upon his intimate relationship with his father. His pre-fight diet consisted of 40 days of fasting. Yeah, he was hungry. Starving to death. No physical condition to fight a fight this big. He desired to be our perfect example, though. And friends, he wants to show you and I how we can overcome the arch enemy of God. So friends, let's get ready to rumble. Amen. Is the moment the world has been waiting for. Uh, let's get ready to rumble. For the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! Ladies and gentlemen, from the Mandalay Bay of Las Vegas, for the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Atlantic City. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! This fight you're in, it ain't no picnic. You better be ready to rumble. It ain't going to be easy. But my prayer is, is that through the course of these messages, you're going to see how you can defeat the arch enemy of God. You're going to see that it's not just a story of good and evil but that also teaches us how we can overcome temptation to sin against God. Just like George Foreman versus Muhammad Ali, Jesus was tested physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and you need to know this, every single day, so are we. You are tempted to sin in some way every day single day that being the case wouldn't it be awesome if god would just show us the situations where god where satan tries to tempt us wouldn't that be awesome wouldn't it be awesome if god would just show us the strategies that satan tries to use wouldn't that be awesome wouldn't it be awesome if god would just show us the specific ways that satan tries to tempt us that would be awesome, wouldn't it? That way we could be prepared. That way we could shore up the areas of our life that are weak, shore up the areas of our life that are susceptible to Satan's attacks. Well, guess what? He did. He did deliver to us all the wisdom necessary to avoid falling from temptation. All we have to do is do what we're trying to teach our CIA kids. Proverbs 8.33 
said, listen to my instructions and be wise. Do not ignore it. How many people have heard the instructions of God, but they're too busy ignoring it? We need to do what we're teaching our kids. So today we're going to begin with the first two issues, the situations that Satan uses and the strategies that Satan uses. But then we're also going to see what the significance of these temptations against Jesus have in our life. And then in the weeks to come, we're going to look at three specific ways that we are tempted to sin against a holy, holy God. So to begin, we got to ask this question. What situations does Satan use to try to tempt us? What situations do we find ourselves in where Satan tempts us? As we look upon the temptations of Christ, when we see the testing and how it came about in Jesus' life, let us also see how the enemy tries to tempt you and I. Let's see this, for the Bible shows, first of all, that the temptation of Jesus came directly after he was baptized. Now, my first question is, why would the perfect son of God need to be baptized? Why would the perfect son of God submit to baptism? He didn't have any sins to wash away, so it wasn't that. Why did Jesus submit and allow John the Baptist to baptize him? Well, he came to John to be baptized for this reason, or for these reasons. First of all, his baptism gave approval to what John was doing. It gave approval to John's ministry. What was the focus of John's ministry? He said it in Matthew 3, 2. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is, is at hand. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does repent mean? It's kind of a forgotten word. Even in church circles, we forget that we are called to repent. We are called not only to change our mind, but we're called to act on that change. How many of us are living a repentant lifestyle? You see, friend, when you repent, you're not just remorseful of something you've done. You don't just feel sad because you know that you've sinned. It's much more than that. The Bible calls us to have fruits worthy of repentance. That means that we are called to show evidence that we're living a repentant lifestyle. We're not the old man. We're not the old woman. Behold, all things have been made new. Are you living like everything's new? Fruits of baptism. And Jesus approved of John's ministry that preached just that. Repentance seemed to be pretty important to Christ. But here's another reason why Jesus submitted to baptism. And that is, his baptism identified him with sinners. That's strange. That Jesus, the Son of God, would identify himself with the very people that he came to save. The perfect example. But think about what Jesus did. He came in the flesh, just like the people he came to save. He came to live in the world just like the people that he came to save. He came and related to the sinful people that he came to save. But he also related himself with those who would seek after God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
Jesus is our perfect example. We are followers of God. We are followers of Christ. And if Jesus did it, I don't know about you. If he did it, then I want to do it. Amen? I've heard so many people say, is baptism necessary for salvation? That's not really a relevant question. The relevant question is, are you a follower of Jesus or not? If you're a follower of Jesus, guess what you're going to do? You're going to follow him just like he was baptized. Some of us here today need to look back into your life and ask yourself, have I followed Jesus? I claim to be a disciple. Have I followed him in baptism? Followers do. Amen. So important that we realize that his baptism identified him with sinners. Here's another reason why Jesus submitted to baptism. Jesus wanted to provide a picture, a picture of the way he would save us. You see, the waters of baptism picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by submitting to baptism, he was providing us a picture of that. Friends, do you know that the only way that God provides for us to be saved, the only way that God permits for a person to be saved against his wrath, against sin, is by believing and trusting as evidenced by a changed life that you trust and believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That is what baptism is a picture of. Have you followed Jesus in baptism? If you believe, then you'll follow. Amen? Amen? If you believe, yeah, you'll follow. So, friend, it was here at the baptism of Jesus that God spoke from heaven and said, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine the spiritual high that must have been? For the, a voice from heaven to echo in the skies. This is my, say it, son in whom I am well pleased. What a spiritual high. But beware, friend. Beware. Because testing often comes at a spiritual high point. In our life. Beware. But this temptation also came, as I read it, in a time of physical weakness. Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days. I cannot even imagine eating for four days. Not eating for four days. Can you? 40 days? But here's what you need to know, friend. Most times, the enemy attacks when we're weak. He attacks when we're weak physically, when we're weak spiritually, when we're weak emotionally. And just like a lion in the Serengeti, Serengeti forest, the devil attacks the feeble. He attacks the injured. He attacks those who aren't paying attention to the attack. Are you paying attention? Are you paying attention? Just listen to these results taken by Discipleship Journal. Discipleship Journal said, uh, actually surveyed believers, and four out of five believers said that temptations were stronger when they had neglected their time with God. 
four out of five said they were more susceptible to temptation when they had neglected their time with God. Three out of five, 57% said that temptation seemed stronger when they were physically tired. Three out of five people said that. 84% said that they were able to resist temptation by prayer. Three-fourths said they were able to resist temptation by avoiding compromising situations. 66% rejected temptation because of their Bible study. Over half. And 52% stood firm against the face of temptation by being accountable to somebody else. So, would you love to overcome all the temptation in your life? If you would, raise your hand. Amen. Me too. I would love to overcome all the temptation in my life. How do I do it? Well, the first thing you need to do is you need to avoid times of weakness. And if you're avoiding times of weakness, the way you do that is you remain strong. Well, how do I remain strong? You want the easy version or the hard version? You want the easy version or the hard version? Easy version. We all want the easy version. Are you listening? Say amen. All right, here we go. Here's how you remain strong and thereby avoid temptation. Ready? Deliberately, purposely, intentionally spend as much time as you possibly can with the people of God, in the house of God, praying to God, studying the word of God, and applying it to your life for the glory of God. That's easy enough, isn't it? That's the way to avoid temptation. You're staying in the word, you're staying in prayer, you're holding yourself accountable to somebody else, you're staying spiritually strong, and you'll be able to avoid temptation. But not only does temptation come after a high point or even during times of weakness. Temptation also comes, as we see, when Jesus was alone. All by himself. You see, Satan chose his timing very, very wisely. If you'll notice, he came when Jesus was alone. He attacked Jesus when he was in the wilderness, a solitary, lonely, desolate, uninhabited place, no friends, no acquaintances, no family. You see, friend, we are most susceptible to temptation when we are alone. When we are alone. So when you isolate yourself from family, when you isolate yourself from friends, when you isolate yourself from the church family, you are at high risk to falling to temptation from the enemy of God. So, in this fight, this greatest heavyweight bout of the world, be aware of your situation. Make sure that you're alert after a high point. 
Be sure to be watchful in times of weakness. And be on guard when you find yourself alone. Because that's when the enemy's coming. That's the situations that Satan uses to tempt us. But what strategies does Satan use to tempt us? Some people say, Brother Bill, I can't help it. The devil made me do it. Ever heard that before? We all have. But here's the problem with that excuse. Are you ready? The devil can't make you do anything. The devil can't force you to do anything. He's clever, but he ain't all powerful. It may seem like every corner you turn, there he is. But he's not ever present like God. You may say, man, he knows just how to get to me. But Satan is not all-knowing like God is. The reason that we so often fall for Satan's temptation is because he uses tried and true strategies of tempting us. Let me give you a picture. First, he lays out the bait. Any fishermen in here? He lays out the bait. Satan knows people. He knows people like fishermen know fish. And he makes note of where they hang out. Satan makes note of their habits. Satan makes note of their inclinations. He observes who they hang out with. He observes where they hang out. And then he prepares a tailor-made lure and drops it right in front of your nose. So what comes next? Next comes the appeal. He can't make you take the bait. But he does know what happens when you catch a glimpse of that tantalizing bait. Our fleshly nature begins to draw us to it. We linger over that bait. We toy with it. We turn it over and over and over again in our minds. We think about it. We dwell on it. We think how yummy it looks. And then at some point, that's all we think about is just taking a bite. Then the struggle begins. Immediately, our conscience will jab us in the ribs Immediately we'll be warned of the danger. We may know that it's wrong to take a bite. We may even see the, the barbed consequences sticking out of the bait. But Satan's temptation, Satan's lure looks so delicious. We just say, what the heck? 
I'll just take a bite. And then the temptation ends with a response. You're either going to resist or you're going to yield to the temptation. You're either going to swim away from the bait or you're going to take you a bite. If you've ever resisted taking a bite, you know that feeling of freedom you get. That Jesus, that Satan ain't got you on the hook. On the other hand, if you've ever yielded to that bait, you know what that feels like too. You remember that feeling of emptiness you had? You remember how it felt to have that hook in your cheek drawing you away from God? You see, Satan's strategy is old as the hills. Satan's strategy is as old as humanity itself. It's not rocket science. He's not that slick. It's not that difficult. But it's tried and true. And listen to this. It always works on those who are caught unaware. Guess what? You are now aware. Go and sin no more. Amen? You know his tricks. You know his strategy. Swim away from the bait. No matter how delicious it looks. You're aware now. Go and sin no more. Finally today. What is the significance of all this? Why are these temptations of Jesus even in my Bible? What is the significance here? As I read it, I'm astounded. Are you trying to tell me, God, that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit of God to be tempted by the arch enemy of God? God did that to himself? Why were these temptations even necessary? You see, what you need to know is this. The original word that we translate, tempt, say tempt. Tempt has two meanings. The first meaning means to prove. To prove. And we find this in John chapter 6 where Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a very great multitude coming toward him said to Philip, where are we going to buy enough bread for all these folks? That's Brother Billology, amen? Uh, where are we going to get enough food for all these folks so that they can have a little bite to eat? But listen to this, verse 6. But this Jesus said to Philip to test him. To prove him. For he himself already knew what he was going to do. And then listen to what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Get this. 
Examine yourselves. That word examine, same word Jesus used. Same word the word of God used to tempt, to prove. Prove yourself as to whether you're in the faith or not. And then the author of Hebrews wrote, in telling the story of Abraham, he wrote, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, when he was proved, same word that Matthew used. When he was proved, Abraham offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. First meaning of that word tempt is prove. It's the same word in all those places. But there's a second meaning to that word tempt, and that means to solicit evil. The Holy Spirit proved Christ. The Holy Spirit of God proved that Jesus was the Messiah. Proved that he was who he said he was. But the devil sought to lure him to do evil. But there's a question that lingers in my mind. Could Jesus have Could he have sinned? Anybody have a response? What do you think? Anybody? It's a yes or no question. What do you think? No? Yes? You say yes? Okay. Could he have sinned? No? Yes? By God's law. No. Could it? No. Could he have sinned? Well, if you say no, then could it have been a real temptation if he couldn't sin? Could it have been a real temptation if there was no way he could sin? Well, if you say yes, we got a bigger problem. If you say yes, Jesus could sin, we got a bigger problem because you're saying that it's possible for a holy God in the flesh to sin. So what is the deal? Yes or no? Huh? He did, but he wouldn't. That's pretty, that's pretty astounding. The first thing you've got to know is this. Jesus Christ is God. Amen? And God cannot sin. Amen? Period. Period. But we also know that Jesus was human, don't we? He was God in the... That's, that's my people. Amen. So... Being that he was God in the flesh, does that mean that he could sin as a human but not God as God? Could he sin in the flesh but not as God? What's the deal? According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul said, He knew no sin. 
in the flesh. He knew no sin. Peter said he committed no sin. John said in him there was no sin. Zero sin. I think Janet was on to something there. Listen carefully. Like you and I, Jesus definitely could be tempted from without. All day long, Satan could come against him and tempt him day in and day out. Luke said that he tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. He tempted him, all right, day in and day out. But unlike us, while he could be tempted from without, he could not be tempted from within. There were no, no sinful lusts in his life. There were no sinful passions, no sinful desires. It was absolutely impossible for any of that to originate within him. So what's the key? The key is this. Despite Jesus' total inability to sin, the temptations were very real. Just like your temptation is very real, Jesus' temptations were very real. But while it was absolutely possible for him to be enticed to sin, it was absolutely impossible for him to fall prey to those enticements. Do you hear that? He could be tempted all right, but it was impossible for him to fall for those enticements. Those temptations had to be real. Otherwise, Hebrews 4.15 doesn't work. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points, say all points, in every single way you're tempted, he was tempted. In all points, tempted, just as we are. But guess what? Yet was without sin. Yeah, he was tempted all right, but there was no way he would fall to those enticements. In order to sympathize with me and you, Christ had to fully experience the temptations of the devil. So what was the purpose? The sole purpose of these temptations was not to see if Jesus would sin, but to be sure, to prove, say prove, to prove that even under tremendous pressure of very real temptation, he could do nothing but obey the word of God. It was impossible. So how about you? Have you obeyed the word of God? Have you obeyed the gospel of God? Paul said, I declare to you the gospel according to the scriptures, that Jesus died for our sins. And he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then he wrote again in the book of Romans, and he said, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is 
and Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be reading the book right now and I know she wouldn't mind me sharing it with you but I'm reading the book right now that says where's the sinner's prayer in the Bible I got news for you don't exist there ain't no sinner's prayer in the Bible but that sinner's prayer is an effort by a man or a person to try to demonstrate what a confession with your mouth sounds like Jesus is Lord. Because Paul goes on and he says, For with the heart one believes and is made right with God. And with the mouth confession is made and he receives salvation. He's saved. For the scriptures say, Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For whoever calls, there's another confession, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be you said it, but guess who else said it? God said it. So my question to you this morning is this. If you say you're saved, do you have the trademark of salvation? Do you look like what it's supposed to look like when a person's saved? Have you made a public confession that Jesus is
divine appointment. God intersects your life with somebody every single day that needs to hear that Jesus is Lord. Are you like me and sometimes blow off those Thank you. 